When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I've really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. no way to quietly open the packaging of a Snickers bar. It's even harder when your hands are cold, and somehow harder still when you're trying desperately not to wake your tent mates in the middle of the night. I unzip the chest pocket of my puffy jacket, surreptitiously remove the candy bar I'd been warming there all night, and did my best not to fumble with the wrapper. Finally, feeling utterly pleased with myself, I'd opened it enough to take a bite. I gnawed through the partially frozen candy without making a peep, then cozied up in my zero-degree sleeping bag and listened to the creaking, groaning glacier as I waited for my shivering to subside. What the hell am I doing here, I wondered as I drifted in and out of sleep. What am I doing, perched at the edge of Planet Hoth, stuffed in a tent between two virtual strangers, miles from the nearest road, and farther from anyone I know? I didn't have an answer the next morning, but I did have chocolate all over my face. I didn't realize it until my tentmate, Gil, asked how my candy bar supply was. I shrugged noncommittally, hoping not to share. I think there's some in your hair, he laughed. Everyone was feeling chipper that morning. We'd spent a miserable afternoon ferrying loads of supplies up a steep, alder-choked hillside, then another few days crossing the Kenai National Wildlife Refuge to get to the base of the Skelac Glacier. Here, we set up our tents and were promptly caught in a four-day storm. After more than a week in the wilderness, the weather had cleared enough to allow us passage onto the glacier. We were participants on an Alaska Pacific University course called Expedition Mountaineering. Our party of nine was made up of seven students, I was the only girl, plus two female instructors. The idea was to get everyone into the remote wilderness for a month, where we'd learn rope systems and crevasse rescue and what it feels like to stand on a summit and then ski off it. But at this point, we learned only the less glamorous aspects of mountaineering, 
How not to kill your tentmates when you're stuck in close quarters during a blizzard, for example. I told my family I'd signed up for the course because it meant I'd earn graduate credits to traipse around on the Harding ice field. Can you believe it? I'd asked my mom, who'd assured me that, in fact, she could not. But as the expedition loomed closer, I struggled daily with self-doubt. Could I really carry a pack that heavy and for that long? What if I couldn't keep up with the boys after all? Would I be paralyzed with fear as we navigated crevasses, mulans, hanging seracs bigger than the truck I'd driven to Alaska? Hazards I couldn't yet imagine but knew were out there? Despite my lingering doubts, I needed this trip. Whatever it entailed, the Harding, I was convinced, was my escape. Ten months earlier, I'd packed up my worldly possessions and moved to Alaska. For graduate school, I said. Though really, I just hadn't known what else to do. I'd gone to college 20 minutes from my hometown in Golden, Colorado, then gotten a teaching license, like everyone else in my family. A week into my student teaching semester, I realized I didn't want to be stuck in a classroom. I finished the semester, but not without much wailing and gnashing of teeth. The last frontier has long drawn those driftless souls who don't really know where they're going, and I was no different. I arrived in Anchorage with most of my savings depleted by the 4,000-mile drive. I knew exactly one person, my longtime boyfriend, also a bit of a lost soul, who'd agreed to come along because he didn't know what else to do back home either. That first winter was brutal. South Central Alaska gets about five hours of daylight in December and January, though it's really more like twilight. It was predictably cold. Between my graduate classes and the two jobs I worked to make ends meet, I didn't make much time for a relationship. Things unraveled slowly at first, then picked up speed, and soon, my boyfriend and I had glissaded out of control to the bitter end. When we broke up, he spent a week in our shared apartment getting things in order, then hugged me as he walked out the door to a new life in Bozeman. Now, I didn't know anyone. When spring arrived, I took stock of my life. I was miserable. Again. To make matters worse, funding for the cushy park service job I'd planned to work during the summer session had fallen through. The lease on my apartment was set to expire in May, which was fine, since I couldn't afford rent there, or anywhere in Alaska, really, by myself. My thesis project, at best a nebulous collection of essays and statistics on gender dynamics in mountaineering, had ground to a standstill. I'd made some friends through school, but no one I knew well enough to ask to crash on their floor while I figured out what on earth I was still doing in Alaska. It took a couple of hours, but we finally made it onto the Skelet Glacier. If glaciers are enormous frozen rivers, the Harding is a sort of headwaters. High in the Kenai Mountains, it spawns something like 40 glaciers, each of them moving almost imperceptibly outward. All that ice and snow must painstakingly make its way downstream, drawn by gravity over rocks and scree, until it finally escapes the frozen wasteland and tumbles into whatever lake or river or ocean is nearest. Our plan was to gain the Harding proper via the Skelet Glacier, then traverse the Harding to the Exit Glacier, which spills into Kenai Fjords National Park. Between us, there were some 20-odd miles of ice and snow, along with the objective hazards presented by a vast expanse of glaciated terrain. 
Picture a Snickers bar, of which I now had just two. Laid flat, it's smooth and whole. Bend it in half, and the chocolate cracks, exposing peanuts and nougat. Glaciers are just the same, minus the caramel filling. They lose elevation or turn a corner, and crevasses open up, sometimes big enough to swallow a car, meaning that glacier travel requires constant probing and backtracking and readiness to self-arrest. As we meandered up the ski lack toward the flatter, safer Harding, my rope team, three burly dudes plus me bringing up the rear, approached a delicate-looking snow bridge, which appeared to be the only way across a four-foot-wide crevasse. Gingerly, we minced across the bridge, hoping it could withstand the weight of our whole rope team. Halfway across, I couldn't help it. I peered into the brilliant blue hole and confirmed that, indeed, the rumors were true. It appeared altogether bottomless. I closed my eyes, swallowed the lump in my throat, and commanded my legs to take another few steps. Oddly enough, pretending I felt confident gave me the courage I needed to push through. I willed myself not to think about the mistakes I'd made in the last year. The deadlines I'd let sneak up on me, the demise of my relationship, my apparent failure to form lasting friendships. Had graduate school been a mistake? Had moving to Alaska in the first place been the biggest screw-up of all? Now and again, I'd be jarred by sudden movement. A teammate suddenly moving faster and jerking on the rope, or a Surratt crashing in the distance. And realize how silly it was to be worrying about my thesis, or anything else at home, when I couldn't do a thing about it. All I had to do for the next 12 days was ski, probe, dig, cook, eat. And avoid those objective hazards. Three days from the end of the trip, though, I started to panic. I didn't have a plan, because for the month of May, I didn't need one. I'd simply ski onto a glacier, where I would see breathtaking views and learn how to build a snow anchor. No one could reach me regarding unpaid bills or unfinished credits. From some remote summit, I'd assumed I would have an experience that would inspire me, allow me to transcend my baggage back home. I'd summited a mountain and skied the best run of my life. I'd led my first pitch of steep snow, which required me to dig deep and not look down. It had been trying, physically and on my psyche, but I hadn't felt the kind of mortal terror I'd anticipated before the trip. In fact, more often than not, I felt pretty level-headed about the dangers of glacier travel. But things weren't always rosy on the ice. My male teammates, out of well-intentioned but misplaced concern, regularly offered to take weight from the pack I had no more trouble carrying than they did. I awkwardly fended off another student's unreciprocated crush. A week into the trip, annoying personal habits wore predictably thin. Some nights, you could have caught the tension in our three-man, or two-man, one-woman tent with an ice axe. Most disappointingly, there were no lightning bolts. I still didn't know what to do with my summer, let alone the rest of my life. Inspiration, as I'd imagined it, hadn't struck. Now, I had to face the realization that I didn't have an exit strategy. This had been it, and it would inevitably end. By the end of May, the exit glacier is not even remotely skiable. The sturdy snow bridges of winter have melted away, 
rendering the glacier a jumbled maze of ice blocks, some larger than the apartment I just vacated. We'd have to pick our way down on the slushy, isothermal snowpack alongside the glacier, alternating between packs on our backs and on our finicky plastic sleds, which slammed regularly into alders and rocks. As much as I wanted to toss my stupid sled off a cliff and call it quits, giving up simply wasn't an option. A few hundred vertical feet above the toe of the glacier, we took a much-needed break. I looked around at my teammates, who looked about as exhausted as I felt. It occurred to me that, as one of the better skiers in our party, I was probably better equipped to deal with the wretched conditions. So, even though I felt more like crying than laughing, I told a few lame jokes, mostly in the category of ways I'd like to annihilate my sled. Bolstered by the ensuing courtesy chuckles, I hoisted my pack, and the rest of the crew followed suit. We took turns scouting routes down, helping one another untangle from unwieldy alders, and making plans to incinerate our sleds the following day. After eight hours, each more trying than the last, we reached the visitor center. Someone asked how I'd stayed so chipper. I just pretended it didn't suck, I laughed. That was the closest I came to getting my epiphany, but catharsis never came. As we loaded skis and packs into a 15-passenger van the next morning, I stared up at the exit glacier, waiting for a sign. The relative hustle and bustle of Anchorage was a shock to the system after weeks on the quiet, desolate Harding. And there was no slowing down. I lined up a new summer job, then registered half-heartedly for the expensive fall courses I wasn't sure I'd end up taking. A few days after the trip ended, my dog died unexpectedly. A month earlier, any of these events alone would have left me paralyzed. Now, though, with my raccoon-style glacier goggle tan and muscles hardened by 30 straight days on skis, I felt oddly confident. I made phone calls and changed plane tickets and rearranged my life, almost as if I knew what I was doing. Thanks to my field experience, I landed a job as a backpacking instructor in Colorado, a job that, as it turned out, would largely determine the trajectory of my life. That summer, As I fretted over a particularly trying cohort of preteens, it dawned on me that if I could traverse a vast glacial hinterland beneath the weight of an 85-pound pack, I could probably manage this. It was with this outlook that I made my way back to Alaska at the end of that summer, buoyed by the kind of self-assurance that comes only from doing something difficult and finishing stronger than I'd started, I intended to pick up both my thesis and my friendships where I'd left off. My experiences as part of a group made up mostly of men on the Harding and the badass women I'd had as role models inspired me to conduct my thesis research on the ways gender identity influences, or doesn't influence, decision-making in dynamic mountain environments, a topic I attacked with great fervor. Almost exactly a year after my first sortie at the Exit Glacier, I finished interviewing a group of Denali guides in Talkeetna about gender dynamics high on the mountain. I organized a pile of paper surveys, musing that the handful of female guides who'd responded had probably had an experience much like my own on the Harding. All that was left now was to comb through my data and write it up. That night, I pitched a tent at the Exit Glacier's ever-receding toe. I cracked a beer on the banks of the Resurrection River and gave the icefall a nod. I thought about the last time I'd stood there, 
12 arduous months earlier and of all the ways my life had changed, all the ways I had changed my life. Thanks to the Harding, I finally had some direction. Thanks, old friend, I murmured, and the glacier creaked and groaned in response. I guess the glacier was my exit strategy after all. I'm Emma Walker, and this is my short. The Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who've taken the byproducts of food waste, dried beetles, and the poop of silkworms, among other things, to create a line of clothing dyed with natural, renewable ingredients. Why? Because dye is dirty. Check out their clean color collection at patagonia.com slash clean color. Thanks, Patagonia. Additional support comes from Kuwet Racks. Check out their lineup of well-built, easy-to-use roof rack, hitch racks, and accessories at kuwetracks.com. Kuwet, because you love your bike. And support also comes from our newest sponsor, Vossen Brewing. Right now, they're waiting to get their utilities hooked up in their Richmond tap house. Within the next few months, they should be pouring pints of their rustic, sessionable beers. Follow them on social media to keep tabs on their progress. Support for the Diaries also comes from you. You guys, you truly keep our show thriving. And to show our gratitude, we're offering a download of our very own Dirtbag Diaries theme song, Ringtone, to everyone who donates. Just go to the website, dirtbagdiaries.com, and click on the pledge button in the upper right-hand corner. A huge thank you to everyone who's already contributed. Thank you, Emma, for sharing your story. Emma did finish that thesis project and graduated with a master's degree in outdoor and environmental education at the end of 2014. These days, she's a freelance writer, and she's gotten a lot more comfortable with not knowing what's next. You can find more of her writing at myalaskanodyssey.com. Music today from MC Cola, ADC Bicycle, Little Glass Men, Kai Angle, and Fog Lake, the tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive, or with permission of the artists themselves. Jacob Bain and Nice Kodos composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and Becca Call. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>